on today's show, the Pfizer vaccine has been granted full approval by the FDA in the United States. What does that mean for these vaccine mandates, vaccination certificates? Petra Schultz joins us. She is a co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, one of two nonprofits taking the provincial government of Alberta to court. And we'll find out what's on the minds of Indigenous voters in this election. So some big developments on the vaccination front once again in our country. Well, not just our country, more in the United States. But uh, interesting announcement from the Blue Jays today. They've announced that all fans that want to attend a Blue Jays game beginning September 13th will have to be fully vaccinated. The British Columbia government today bringing in a vaccine vaccination certificate. Uh, if you want to go to a movie, you want to go to a restaurant, things like that, you are going to have to provide proof of vaccination. Same thing's already in place in Quebec. Um, and it's happening more and more. We see now governments doing it, uh, sports leagues have done it, entertainment venues have done it, employers have done it, saying if you want to work here, you're going to have to be vaccinated. So we're seeing more and more added to the list of quote-unquote mandatory vaccinations. The other big development, of course, today is the FDA granting full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. That changes things in a big way, I would think, because now that it's fully approved, you would have to think it will be easier for more of these vaccination certificates or mandatory vaccination policies to be brought in now that the vaccine is fully approved in the United States. And uh, one has to assume full approval in Canada and the EU and the UK will not be far behind. But let's get some details on the legalities surrounding all of this. We're going to chat now with Eric Adams, who is the vice dean and a professor of law at the University of Alberta. Uh, Eric, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Shay. Let's start with the big development today, which, of course, is the FDA granting full approval for the COVID vaccine from Pfizer. Um, does that change things in terms of legal legs to stand on for agencies or governments that want to bring in mandatory vaccination certificates? Does that make it easier for them? Well, I think it, it certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, it's probably always been the case that uh, that these uh, vaccines uh, were headed headed in the direction of, of being officially sanctioned by you know, the various uh, medical bodies uh, and public health organizations at the national and provincial levels. Um, so, yes, it does provide a bit of of, of reliance uh, or, or stability to the for the foundation of, of the arguments that that event that a max, that a vaccine can be mandatory um, but really it's always going to come down to the same question which is uh, does the employer have a justified reason for doing so I think that's the most important variable in this discussion yeah and that's been you know bandied about and argued about but we see so many big big employers doing it where does the law come down on that especially in our part of the world well, it's, it's interesting because for a long time, and I think through the spring, the employment lawyers that uh, that I was uh, you know talking with this about really thought that this probably wasn't going to materialize. That it was going to be easier for employers to basically avoid this issue entirely. It was probably unlikely that that most employers would would think about mandatory vaccinations. You know, it was just a big uh, you know big can of worms that people didn't want to get into because of yeah. privacy issues and all that. But really we've seen, and I think your uh, your introduction signaled this, that the last six weeks have, have, have changed. Um, the culture around mandatory vaccinations have changed for a number of reasons. And one of them is is that the pandemic ain't over. Um, so if people thought you could sort of announce that the pandemic was done and that, you know, vaccines were here, this was all going to disappear, it turns out that that 
wasn't the case. And two, uh, the number of unvaccinated people uh, remains large enough for this pandemic to continue to circulate. And so we thought that voluntary vaccination efforts would probably take us, you know, we hoped close to herd immunity. Um, we're nowhere close to that in most of uh, North America, certainly not in Alberta and, and in some American states, uh, not even over 50%. So we know that in those conditions the, the, that the, the virus is going to continue to flourish. And more than that, it's going to continue to have opportunities to mutate and develop, possibly develop uh, more dangerous strains, which has meant that people have started to realize, employers and governments and the general public, that a a purely voluntary approach to vaccination, which probably would have been preferable for all kinds of reasons, is difficult to sustain where we all have a stake in getting that vaccination level higher. Uh, and if you're, if you're working in a community where, you know, 30, uh, 35% of, the, of, of your potential coworkers are not vaccinated, that has implications also for your day-to-day experience at work. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you're running a business and you know that somebody comes in with COVID and six of your employees out of 10 contract COVID, your business suffers dramatically. So they do have a case to say, in order for us to keep our operation running, um, this is something that we require, right? I, I think there's it, it, it's not quite black and white, of course, because uh, different people are going to have different reactions yeah. to the virus. Some will get quite sick, some will die, some will have almost no symptoms at all. So it's it's difficult for employers to forecast. You know, if X happens, uh, then then Y is the result. We're always going to be dealing with probabilities, with likelihoods. Can an employer take into the into account the the risks? that are created by either unvaccinated uh, workers or unvaccinated customers on their particular business? The answer has to be yes to that, but it's always going to be in the nature of calculating risks. There is really no certainty if we've learned anything in the last yes. 16 months. There's, there's very little certainty to be had, and the law, you might imagine, prefers certainty. We, we don't have it in this uh, field. So what that means is, is when we're talking about whether or not employer can demand vaccinations, we're not talking about, about, you know, if I don't do this, this will happen. We're talking about, is it reasonable for the employer to have taken these steps, given the possible consequences of unvaccination? And that's the kinds of questions that, uh, you know, courts and lawyers are going to be wrestling with. But I think that the needle is moving, um, as I thought it probably always would, towards a higher tolerance for mandatory vaccination in lots of workplaces. Not only we've seen them started out in long-term care facilities and and health facilities, they made a lot of sense there, but now we're seeing them moving into the banking sector, into federal government employees. I think we're going to see them moving into some service industries, and I don't think this trend is, is, is slowing down anytime soon. I think last time we talked, um, and uh, one of the themes that has been mentioned many times when it comes to employers mandating vaccines is you can't do it if you already work there. You can't change the conditions of employment once you've been hired, but you can certainly put it on ahead of time. Um, has that changed? I mean, some of these companies, and you're talking about like places like Google and Facebook and Netflix, some of these giant employers uh, seem to be saying, to hell with that. If you want to work here, you need to be vaccinated. It doesn't matter when you were hired. Um what what where's the law standing on that? I'd like you say this changes day by day. So what's your thinking on that? 
I think you're right that it's always going to be easier for an employer to deal with a condition of employment for a new employee. That that certainly remains the case. So you're you're hiring someone new into a job to set out the terms of the contract, and one of the conditions of that contract is a vaccination. That's always going to be easier to do legally than to say to an existing, we call them incumbent employees, and say, guess what? Uh, if you want to stay working here, uh, you've got to get vaccinated. And that, that distinction, I think, remains true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that employers can't compel, as conditions of employment, uh, current incumbent employees to get vaccinated. It's going to be much easier for them to do that where they bargain for that if it's a unionized workplace or whether there's some um, exchange of, you know, for signing this new contract, which includes a mandatory vaccination, you know, here's a vaccination bonus pay. Mm-hmm. That's all going to be uh, lawful if, uh, if an employee consents to it. The tricky issues are around when an employee doesn't consent. So you've got a current employee, you've got a mandatory vaccination policy, and that employee does not consent to the change of their employment. Um, now, one of the options is to terminate that employee. And um, especially where that employee is not being vaccinated as a matter of personal preference, there's very little to stop an employer on human rights grounds from terminating the employee in that circumstance. It's different, of course, if the employee is not getting vaccinated because of a medical condition. And and almost all employers are going to know that you can't compel someone to do something that's, you know, uh, medically unhealthy for them. So you've got to build in the possibility of, of, of accommodating people who simply can't receive vaccinations. There may also be a small group with religious objections. I've, I've heard a little bit of some religious objections to vaccination. There may be a small group, but let's be honest. The, the number of people that can't be vaccinated because of a religious exe- objection or because of a medical condition are actually very small. Very small. The bulk of our unvaccinated public are doing it because of a matter of preference. Um, you mentioned human rights there, and I think that's an interesting part of this because, you know, we do have certain rights under the Charter in terms of mobility and all these sorts of other things. Um, and some of these mandatory vaccination policies or vaccination certificates certainly bump up against some of those rights. Now, nobody's saying you have to get vaccinated, but it seems to me there's a pretty thin line and a bit of a gray area in terms of, well, how close can we come to, quote unquote, violating some of the rights in the Charter by doing this um, and get away with it legally? I mean, that has to be a consideration too, right? The the first thing I'd say on, on the, the Charter is to remember that the Charter only applies when the government is the employer. Right. So if you're running a corner store, you're running a, a car dealership, the Charter doesn't apply to your employment relationships. The Human Rights Code does, but not the Charter. But of course, the government is a massive employer, whether you're driving a city bus or whether you're um, a, a public employee of, a, of the province or the federal government. The Charter applies to the conditions of your employment. And that's a large number of employees. Uh, and so, yes, the Charter protects your rights to equality, your rights to, to liberty and security of the person, and your rights to expression and opinion. So there is protection there. You say, well, my opinion is I don't want to get vaccinated. Are you protected? In the, Does that right exist? It does. But the government can limit that right in uh, reasonable circumstances. That, again, that's where this is all going to come down to. Is the government, when it's an employer, does it have reasonable grounds to compel vaccinations um, in its workforce? And I think it's 
becoming more clear than it was even a year ago. It's becoming more clear that there is a compelling public health interest in widespread vaccination. Um, and so I think the government is going to have a stronger argument that um, compelling vaccination is a reasonable limit on people's rights not to be vaccinated, especially where the government, I, I, you know, you've seen this in some circumstances, is building in alternatives. So it's not quite a, you got to get vaccinated or you're fired, right. It, but it is... If you it's don't close. get vaccinated, then, you know, it's daily testing yeah. or it's you're, you're being moved to some other unit where you're not going to have exposure to anybody or or X or Y or or, or, or other alternatives. And, and, and like you've said a couple of times, and I think we all understand, this is all going to have to be tested in the courts. And that's ultimately what's going to happen here. Are any of those cases underway? Have any has anybody launched, you know, human rights challenges or legal challenges? Or are we still too early in the whole rollout of this to get to that point yet? We've started to see, uh, uh, there's always a lag. So where, where we actually see some case law being developed is around uh, some of the, the pandemic restrictions uh, on uh, mobility. We yep. saw some cases about masking. And all of those ended up with decisions, and you know we'll see appeals to those cases. But the, basically all of those cases resulted in courts saying there is a pandemic People are dying. Um, you may have some rights here, but they're but these but your rights are not being infringed by reasonable public health measures, even though they are dramatic, even though they would never fly in a normal mm-hmm. set of circumstances. These ain't normal circumstances, yeah. and so that has been um, virtually every case that has been raised on these measures to date. There's now a couple of uh, uh, you know at least. 10 or 12 of them. Um, In employment law, we will, of course, eventually get cases where employees file a grievance with their union or make a um, a, an unfair uh, discrimination or or a case or or argue that exactly those are going to happen. And I suspect they'll go the same direction, Shay, is that courts will say, um, unless the employer has been completely unreasonable here, uh, the facts on the ground are this was a pandemic. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and uh, always appreciate the insight. And uh, as those cases move through the courts, we'll have to check in again, Eric. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, happy to be back anytime. Appreciate it very much. Cheers. That is Eric Adams, who is the Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Alberta. And uh, yeah, we're going to see court battles. There's no question these will be taken to court uh, on a number of different levels. And as he said, they already have. You know, when we talked about masking and uh, other restrictions that were brought in, some of those were challenged legally. They've withstood the challenge to this point, this whole vaccination one. And I get the argument. You know what? You're still saying it's my choice, but at the same time, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do this and I can't work here and I can't go there. Uh, how much of a choice is it? Fair fair comment. Fair comment. Um, you still do have the choice not to get vaccinated, but I guess the consequences are piling up day after day after day. And it will end up in court. There's no question. And it'll be interesting to see um, where the law comes down on this, because there's going to be numerous court challenges, I would think. Well, the government of Alberta, and, and to be completely fair, all governments at every level to some degree have been completely and totally ineffective in dealing with the opioid epidemic. It's been a disaster. 641 Albertans died in the first five months of 2021. That's a 40% increase over the year before. And uh, this just continues, a deadly trend that has gotten worse and worse and worse year after year. Now, here in Alberta, the government has focused on a recovery-based approach, which clearly is not enough with the 40% increase. Um, We've worked hard here on the show to make sure we bring in 
the experts surrounding the science. We have a discussion based on what does the medical evidence show us? It's evidence-based treatment. What works when it comes to addiction? And recovery is part of it. There's no question. That is a key component to it. But um, it's a full-spectrum problem. And while adding recovery beds is great, it needs to come with other things, including overdose prevention, because dead people have no use for recovery beds. They're no help. Um, And that's the full spectrum. You need to save lives, need to get them help, and then you need to provide continuing support. It's, it's all been laid out. We've talked about it here on the show many, many times. Now, the Kenny government has actually increased the recovery beds, which is great, but at the same time, reduced access to overdose prevention, something that the experts tell us will continue to lead to overdose deaths. Um, two nonprofits are now taking the government to court over this issue. Mom Stop the Harm and the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society. And joining us now to tell us more about what's going on, we have Petra Schultz, who is one of the founders of Mom Stop the Harm. Um, Petra, thanks for joining us this morning. Always appreciate chatting with you. Thank you very much for uh, for having me and for letting explain a little more detail in more detail why we are taking the province to court. Yeah, let's start right there. Why now? Why at this point have you decided this is uh, the next logical step for you, or maybe the only step left? It's more the latter, the only step left. I mean, we are small not-for-profit, and our focus is to support families who have lost loved ones and have loved ones living with problematic substance use, and we advocate to change drug policies. Lethbridge uh, Overdose Prevention Side focuses on keeping people healthy and alive, uh, but we have reached the conclusion that government doesn't listen to the people affected, they don't listen to medical experts, and they don't listen to the science. So we felt this was a step that we had to take. And I have to be honest, it's a little scary to take your province to court. But uh, we, were, we are feeling really, really strongly about doing this. Let's walk through um, the action that you're taking, uh, your specific um, allegations, your specific concerns with what the government has done and why you think it's legally actionable. Well, what the government has done, they have created new regulations for supervised consumption and overdose prevention sites. And there are two aspects to them. The most important aspect is they will affect access to the site. They will uh, prevent people from accessing. They will make people hesitant to access. And uh, the other element is that they're just so arduous uh, that they will not allow organizations like Leftbridge Overdose Prevention side that literally op- have operated out of a tent. Mm-hmm. They will not allow them to provide that service. So those are the, the two elements. But really the most important thing is that I lost my son Danny in 2014 and he had relapsed um, and died. We did not know that he had relapsed. Danny was feeling shameful about his substance use and even so we supported him every step of the way he did did everything in his power to hide his substance use from us from his friends from his employer and for him having that on his health care record would have been a deal breaker as it is for so many people people that we have spoken to people that we know um use supervised consumption side because it's a low barrier access you want it's a life-saving program you want people to come in feel welcome not feel shamed not feel blamed and they can't be afraid of negative personal consequences 
after all, substance use is deemed illegal in this country. Um, and if you engage in activity that's deemed illegal, uh, you don't want your friends, your neighbors, your employer, and in many cases, not your family to know, and neither your health care provider. Well, Petra, you make such an important point because I think anybody who's done any work with addictions or, or gone through it with personal experience knows it's shame and guilt that drives it. That's what it is. Um, that, that's what it's based on. And when you increase the shame and you increase the stigma and you increase the, you know, that shameful feeling that people have, you, you make it much harder for them to, to access help. So when you talk about that health care card and providing that, first of all, I don't know how many of these people might have access to their health care card. Um, but second of all, just any added barrier will cost lives, right? Is that basically what you're saying? Exactly. That is exactly what we are saying, that adding barriers will drive people away. And uh, we know when you overdose, your only chance is to have another person with you. We also know that nobody has ever died at a supervised consumption or overdose prevention site. So we know these sites work not only in keeping people alive, but also keeping them healthy. Um, and, and that is so important. And the other thing these sites do is they connect people with services, but they connect them because they are no barrier um, and, and no shame and no blame. And as you correctly identified, many people don't have, have health care numbers. Of course, there are provisions to apply for those. But yeah. again, that is another step that people have to take. Um, so just to be clear here, what you're, what you're seeing in the action, you're not asking them to do anything additional. Basically, what you're asking them to do is to just maintain what it was prior to some of these steps that they've taken over the last year or two, right? I mean, you're not talking them uh, to take giant leaps forward, just basically go back to the way it was, right? Exactly. Um, these uh, rules will come into effect in September. And what's interesting, uh, supervised consumption sites are um, feder- federally regulated. And I helped um, get the sites here in Edmonton approved. And I tell you, the regulation, they are extensive. There are, is already extensive reporting and extensive regulation that all sites across Canada um, have to adhere to. What is now being um, implemented in Alberta is um, uh, kind of superseding the federal powers and is different from what they do in Ontario, in um, in D.C. or anywhere else where these sites exist. So it's not deemed necessary by the the government that actually regulates these sites. So it is really unnecessary and it is, most of all, it is harmful and that is why it needs to be stopped before it is implemented. Um, what's the timeline on this? When are you expecting to hear a response and if not, when does it end up in court? Well, I mean, we will be um, seeking an injunction within the next few few days um, if we don't hear back from the province that they will uh, cease and desist with um, implementing these guidelines. We will ha- we have to act on this swiftly because as soon as these guidelines go into effect, it will be a greater barrier. It's always harder to remove something that's already in place than stopping mm-hmm. something um, negative from happening. Uh, Petra, thanks so much for the update. Always a delight to chat with you, and uh, we'll follow up once this uh, continues down the legal channels. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, and thank you to the listeners for the interest. Thanks very much, Petra. That thank is you. Petra Schultz, who is the co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, a national advocacy group, a nonprofit. All right, we're going to touch on another 
series of issues as we go through this election campaign. We talked about the whole vaccination policies and what we're seeing from uh, the federal government, you know, in terms of their uh, mandated industries and, and the policies they're putting in place. We're going to switch gears now and talk about Indigenous issues. And I think it's a little bit different this time around because of the spotlight on Indigenous issues in our country. So we're going to get some insight into what issues are important to that segment of our population, what they're looking for, where they want to see progress made, and what they're hearing from the leaders. We're going to chat with Dr. Cindy Blackstock, who is a member of the Gixgan First Nation in British Columbia and the Executive Director of the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. Doctor, thank you for your time. Did I say that First Nation correctly? How do you pronounce it? It's Gitsan, but that's uh, you were pretty close. I was pretty close. I pretty, the, the the X threw me off. Uh, appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I want to touch on you know when we're talking about indigenous issues. I don't think they obviously get uh, the attention that some of the other issues do. But I think this election might be a little different simply because of the fact. Um, with the discoveries at the residential schools and the prominence that it's been given uh, right across the country and the attention that people are paying to the history around uh, First Nations in Canada, um, it's important to people outside of the First Nations. Do you think I'm right on that? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and I think that people are, are paying particular attention during the federal election because, of course, it was a federal government that was command and control for these yeah. schools. And uh, evidence uh, was there for the government of Canada to have prevented a lot of these deaths. Their own chief medical health officer in 1907 pointed out the unequal health care funding and terrible health care practices was resulting in death rates as high as 50% in the schools. And these things could have been fixed, but the government chose not to fix it. And this choosing not to implement available solutions is a chronic pattern that we see throughout residential schools and even today with the First Nations, Métis and Inuit kids today. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, at some level or another for a very, very long time. I mean, the first inquiry into this happened about a decade ago almost. So, I mean, and it's been going on far before that. So when we head into this election campaign, is there a different approach? Is it kind of like, okay, enough with the talk, um, enough with the discussion, we want to see some promises or at least some pledges or some action being taken? I mean, is it different time in terms of, okay, we've done the talking, now what, what are you actually going to do? Yeah, it, that's the major question, is the doing. Uh, there's been lots of talk, but not a lot of implementation of the available solutions, and that's what we all have to demand. That's what we have to judge success by. So when we take a look at that, um, let's talk about the Trudeau government. Uh, they want to be returned to power, uh, hopefully with a majority if you're them. Um, yeah. Th- when you take a look at the Truth and Reconciliation Report and all the promises that the Prime Minister yeah. made surrounding them, uh, it's been all talk with very, very little, if any, action, right? Does that hurt them? Um, I think it is. And I, what I want is for voters to really remind the government that this is something that matters to them. When you have a horrible human rights abuse like this, that has literally had the government in connection with children's deaths, both in the past and in the present, there's a legal ruling right now yeah. that shows Canada's unequal provision of public services for First Nations kids has contributed to deaths of children since 2018, um, that we have to see action on the implementation of it, and that it is a voting issue, because what the government care, uh, counts on is that the Canadian government, the Canadian public doesn't care or doesn't care enough. And when it doesn't care or doesn't care enough, the government continues the injustices. Um, 
What about the other parties? Um, I mean, again, we're, we're, it's all talk during a campaign. Yeah. Uh, understandable. Um, are they making any headway? Are they starting to resonate a little bit? Or what are they saying? Well, we're seeing from the NDP um, a commitment to implement the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls calls to justice and the TRC's calls to action. Um, they've also uh, adopted something called the Spirit Bear Plan, which is just a common sense plan to cost out all the inequalities in federally funded public services, things like water, education, et cetera, and just create a Marshall Plan to deal with it. Mm-hmm. On the conservative side, we've seen, um, so let's uh, you know provide funds for the uh, children who are in unmarked graves across the country, uh, but they haven't made that leap to really deal with the contemporary injustices. And that really is where it should stop, is you should stop doing the harm right now and also address the past stuff. And that's where the truth and reconciliation calls to action are so helpful, because they do both. Um, when we take a look at um, a couple of other issues, and this one was interesting, doing some reading this weekend, and uh, uh, some First Nations leaders saying, you know what, uh, climate change is something that's really on our minds. When you take yeah. a look at what happened, especially in British Columbia um, with the yeah. wildfires, they were um, hit much harder than um, a lot of other communities. They dealt with it in a, in a much more severe way. So they're saying, you know what, we don't want to continue to see this going on and on and on. And again, more talk without any action, because it's affecting us disproportionately. Yeah, you know, um, First Nations have been talking about the importance of the land, not just for First Nations, Métis, or Inuit peoples, but also for all everyone in Canada. People are starting to see that if you don't pay attention to really moderating human behavior in connection with the environment, that it's going to come back to bite you. Um, and so climate change is an emergency. It's on, it, it's probably even more deadly than the pandemic over the long run, unless we do something about it. Um, the one that just frustrates me and drives me crazy, and I know for a lot of Canadians it's the same, is just, can we not get clean drinking water after oh. all this time? I mean, how is yeah. this still going on? How important is that? How big of an issue is that in this campaign? Well, you think about clean water in the pandemic, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you're like, you know, we're all supposed to be washing our hands. Imagine not being able to do that for you and your family, right? Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous, and there's no excuse for this. I mean... The federal government says, well, you know, these things take time. Well, they've had 153 years since Confederation <laughs> to fix these inequalities and have chosen not to. And then sometimes they say, well, it's because these places are so remote. Well, the space station, population six, has clean drinking water. So yep. why can't we get clean drinking water up to First Nations folks in Canada? It's just unthinkable. It's a lack of political will. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, th- that's the only barrier. Uh, it's certainly not anything else uh, that we can point to. Um, any other issues that we didn't get to that uh, are important and are being brought up and uh, the governments need, or the want- wannabe governments need to pay attention to? Well, I think always it's affirmation of self-determination for communities, the ability to make decisions for themselves. And that means getting rid of that Indian Act. Yes, the very same law that pushed First Nations kids into residential schools is still on the books. And there's a solution to get rid of that called the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, so that should be put in place too. Um, Cindy, thanks so much for your time today. Always appreciate chatting. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Cindy Blackstock um, bringing us some insight into, um, you know, what's important to Canada's First Nations as we go through this election campaign. And some of them we know, right, when we talk about the residential schools. And and that one, okay, if you're a conservative... um, or NDP, or Green, or or Block, or whoever, you've got to think 
you can stand up and say, here is yet another example of our prime minister saying all the right things, but then not actually doing anything. Um, the the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Report, just a tiny fraction of them have actually been acted upon, even though they've been sitting there for a while, and he promised to bring them all in. So um, it's another example of, I'm going to say these things, I'm going to promise these things, but yeah, it doesn't actually come through. So uh, important issues in drinking water on First Nations in this country, really, in 2021, we're still talking about that. Hard to believe, but it's been going on for years, uh, and we'll see if any government can finally... Uh, make some progress in that area. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.